use as a church actually and uh, so that's what that is my that's my life I can say but I also make paintings and stained glass and so on ah, so I was curious I'm making a um, exhibition uh, Afro-Caribbean artist you know what? he was a Afro-Caribbean hear from me man and, okay and, uh, fine Two of the uh, three like answers I got were about devotion. Now, he was not so keen to so participate. I think I'll start there. The topic is like stated. He to be with me. He discipleship to is a way of life. So much interest and in, so devotion in being is with a very and sensible so middle and for and that. I, found it very, very I want to approach it though in a slightly different way I felt, than we usually uh, think of it. I of course, some mostly we think about devotion questions as came up very um, easily. Love and I spoke with him and, and he the feelings of the my, my views and my doubts and so on to satisfy okay. me. I don't remember um, exactly what those were, but um, when we I talked. was and asked I to give a, a talk before about many years ago about uh, the, on the subject of if devotion, if I'm putting it in the shortest way, it then occurred I would to me say to think about it in a very different way. I would way, reflect on what we talked about at um, the time, from and whenever I the, felt I would like to verb, see him, which is he to be devoted. That is. And I didn't make an in many ways that he is didn't have a phone, I don't the same have a phone. as the topic we're I was just thinking, yeah, talking like about, which Michael. is discipleship as a way of life. Pop, pop, pop on the door and and sometimes we and again, we'd make keep things more complicated going. than and we are. They are because uh, we take an aspect of the spiritual so. path and we sure fragment it out from regular life. I mean, that's this topic is talking about. The idea that again, we're disciples we were like four in the house. is something that One should just be who we are and how we live and not some separate category. Talking. And so the concept of so devotion enriching is also, we tend to think of, of it as something him. sort of outside of when I'm That's, meditating or when I'm chanting or him, uh, something like that. When you but pray again, if we start with what the basic you, word means me? and where it comes that. from and what that's and about, said, yes, it begins to open for us right the now? door of what it is that we're really trying oh. to do. Okay, because so we stood um, up and he stood absolutely. up next to me, put his hand on when my head, and prayed. When I'm giving classes on the chakras, which is a very popular subject, of course, um, I have a YouTube channel which some of you know me from watching that those talks. One of the more most popular talks on there with thousands of views is and the four-part series I gave good. on the chakras. The door, I, I, for a period of time, I was doing a live stream for India. So it was uh, like 7.30 at night so in India, and it was 7.30 in the morning in California. And then light. it flipped over to being 6.30 in the morning in California, and then the I stopped doing it. <laughs> but not before I finished these four classes on the chakras, and I'm standing in front of the curtain in my living room with this board up over here. Happy. If I had known it was so going to end up being so popular, I might have tried to make it a little more professional looking. It doesn't make any difference. Very, very but whenever I start talking about that subject, sleep came. I didn't just want trying sleep to get to people into a, a practical asleep, relationship with the chakras and to really understand what we're talking about, I, woke up the next morning, I talk about the fact that every action that we take, as long as we're ego-identified, which is until we become Jivan Mukta, we're ego-identified, and therefore the actions like that we take, the thoughts the that we think, the feelings that we have are tied Some to us. Been um, they, the the energy that we put out doesn't just sail away happy. into the infinite. An After avatar has no ego self to absorb the karma, and so energy just passes through heart. them. Swamiji's, Swamiji had no karma of his own. He was Yuvan Mukta, I believe. And 
His en many energy just moves through him. From that period but until when now, I do things, it stays things with me because I identify with it. it. It makes the a sense of myself, my egoic chakra. tendencies and behaviors. So without giving a whole continued class on chakras, because I can send you to there, and I'm sure you've had many uh, classes here. Didn't just disappear. The basic concept of the chakras is mistake, that but I was so they represent a spectrum of conception of reality Every, and self-definition began to fall away absolute because material the as the only so reality compelling, that, that matters so the only universe so rich, there's no so greater complete. reality than this I when we die we die it's all over offer my life and a, please take, all the way to take god it, realization where take our consciousness is one with for, the infinite give me more of and this i want more every of this. single the, decision my, my every action that we take every reaction to life thing. Every thought, I, every feeling but it doesn't work like that. Gradually, is a reflection you know, things of, begin to of change what and more we and more deeply feel going out like that. is real. And, uh, and it's not a matter of what we oh, think. We, okay. It's not a matter of the philosophy we can spin uh, so or the stories we can tell or, my or mind the, when we, or we the myths we can you weave around ourselves. It's really just on a, on a metaphysical level. Which has and what I mean by that is, it's not level. theology, what it's, it's physics. And can you give us some every time we that? do something, we're affirming a certain reality. I've been very interested by the fact that I, I've always had, I was I've always been very interested in death. And I know that may sound morbid to some people, but it's never been morbid to me. I find that the fact the of, part of passing out of this body into the astral world. I am trying to make it it's, as it's simple as very, possible. And then coming back into this body and reincarnation. You see? All of that is and always so what happened uh, is that, uh, fascinating point, and thrilling. I was never reading me. books. I don't so, read many um, books. If you saw and, me with and a book, I can talk about the continuation of consciousness, and I've been no? been but blessed to be present when, with and with so, a number of people who have died. I did not, not have much reading you know, background. The, maybe ten or twelve, but, uh, not more than that. Michael, but that's quite a few. The entire Bible in the position that I'm I'm in, sometimes people will ask me to be there kind of at the time of transition. And I'm not frightened of people dying. It's just it's beautiful to watch people breathe their last. Sometimes it's what I could not understand is last. when my father died, they were on I felt such a rising sense of joy that when everybody came to commiserate with my sister and my brother and I, and I, was I was just smiling and laughing gospel. to such an extent that and my sister that me had to reprimand like me. She said, people are on I didn't feel you know, you have to far away. honor people's feelings. And I said, and I just I can't stop I smiling. So she made me go sit in the corner, you know, and just, she was able to greet people appropriately. I just couldn't. And, uh, but still, so when I'm on the freeway, when I'm driving later, down the highway, and something happens and I think I'm going to get hit, I, I made get frightened. some decoration in our house, and she gave me you the know, largest sum of money I like, ever experienced. I know that like, if uh, I'm going to leave my body, I'm going to leave my body. But I there's still kind of a very deep part of me weeks, that identifies with this body India. and is frightened that something might happen to yeah, it. Knew nothing about so India. that's what I mean when I'm I saying in Delhi, <clears> uh, it's, it's metaphysics. No, you know, lonely planet guide or nothing like that. I just arrive in Delhi. And in Delhi for about seven days. It's, it's laws and then in of Delhi, the universe. In this little guest house, I saw it says. Um, <clears throat> I have some. It's not. Coach rides to Rishikesh. I'd heard this name Rishikesh. Um, when I, I say said, it's I'll metaphysics, it's like objective law. So I packed, packed a small bag. You can't. And you left can't get around it with cleverness. 
and then took a and bus. And God doesn't care what, how many degrees you have and, and whether you were first in your class. Up there, if up there the top. it looks like you're going to get hit on the freeway and, and you're uh, frightened, I came here, then that registers and then I in never the chakra went back that is appropriate in, in Delhi between for six I am a physical body and I am one with the infinite. So I came here and it just and, uh, is. Like this, so uh, who we are then one day is coming just up from this Ganga, vibration people, uh, of this collection at Laxmanjula, of our responses. Where there's no cars anymore. There. Now, this, on one hand, this is appalling and just those days, sort of terrifying. One car was and on there. the other hand, I was walking with if some we really, friends um, and some people you. were in the car asking for directions. And while they were talking to the driver, Indian driver, some Europeans in the back, in the back seat looked out towards me and says, hey, On the I other hand, you. if we really said, cognize that, that new in India. for what said, it really means, no, 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 it means me. that, we are, that, that there, yeah, there is nothing about us the woman that is out fixed. Looks, oh, I see you, I we are simply you. the reactions no, that no, we've no, stored no, you up. Don't me. You know, like and we are just a field the of driver, energy. Indian driver, and and yeah, energy yeah, you, can be influenced at any moment. No matter how what long is this? it's what, been uh, one thing, uh, no, I don't if, we, know these people. if we put in enough energy said, no, no, in another direction, like me, beard and it will just become they that. Left and laughing just and as simple as that. They rise now, back up. in when theory, I up to my we hotel, can generate they were getting off enough energy to completely unpacking. shift our consciousness so again, we just met in a second. Said, Master says, a habit can be broken just like that. But it's metaphysics. It's a balance of energy. So if we've spent many incarnations reacting to life according to a any. certain perception of reality, say, Please come the first time it occurs to us that that might not so be true anymore, that they first thought book called is Wake not up as and big roar. as what but, we have uh, built up So usually it takes time to build the next up morning as much energy leaving. in a new direction day. as we have already built leaving. up in an old the driver direction. Was also a However, it only I takes time. It, what it actually takes is energy. But most of us need time to put out that much energy. I said, uh, no, you see the I difference? To to so you have a theory first. and then you have and they the way it actually generally works. But nonetheless, we can become anything we wish to become just by determining that we're going to do it. I felt I needed there was to leave a, Rishikesh. Uh, an anecdote about for ten days, one famous violinist, I'm not sure which one it was, Horowitz or Perlman uh, or one of the famous violinists, and after and, the concert uh, was Papaji, over, someone came up to him and said, oh, I'd give my life to be able to play the violin day, like that. Satsang, and the musician said, I have. And it was a very simple come to some experiences that, yes, and I that's to right. share with him. That's exactly how you become this powerful at what you're doing. And, uh, you give your life to it. You're devoted to it. And he murdered me, basically. And so uh, we can be devoted <laughs> to <laughs> he was, many so he things. Was talking, talking you know, I recently me, learned that one young man who's now like 18 or 19, and I, last time I knew him, he was a scrawny little kid, and now he's like, you, who a are big, you scrawny you don't kid. Know me, but I'm anyway, he's a lot taller. He's devoted to becoming a soccer star. I said, does he have any ability to play? Well, no one really knows, but he's devoted to becoming a soccer star. At least in his mind, he's devoted to that. Now, some people are devoted to becoming a and soccer star, and, and they're really said, devoted to it. They're going to give their to life know to the it, truth, and, you, and you such people actually succeed. I was vanish. listening to one athlete who, um, I don't, I think he was a, a bicyclist that, or you know, something you know, like that. How do you and he vanish. described his uh, 
and his there was all this resistance. So many hours the, of this, so many hours of this, so many hours of this. Was coming up so loud every that I could not physically hear him. My birthday, my anniversary, I Christmas, was looking at him talk. New Year's Day, every day. And that was that. I mean, he was Inside. devoted to that, and that's how he managed to be that like good that. at it. Sometimes, so it was not a pleasant time, experience in a previous life. And at the end of Satsang, um, I know I was. I, I saw a documentary about Yo-Yo Ma, who plays now. the cello, and he actually like presented a very interesting dilemma. And I went he said, by the time he was 21, he was at the top of his profession. That, that was the there was nobody in the world who was as good as he was. At the time when most people are just beginning, he was finished. And he actually said but it was a very he had to spend day, a lot of years figuring out what to do to with the rest of his life. And like, he, he began to use music in like a very different way, to unite the world and so on like that. But that's what devotion really looks walk, like. So when we're talking about having devotion for the Guru or developing devotion in our lives, the first thing we have to think of is the word devoted. Because the rest of it will come and the rest of it actually you know, the, the feeling of, of love, which we what call I mean devotion, comes to us spontaneously when we're devoted to something. You know, when no, we really want to do it, we think about it all the time, because don't we? I recently I was published this book about Swami Kriyananda, Swami Kriyananda Lightbearer. You all history, are here, you who must I think know I about it. I could not find and, uh, anything of Swamiji told me that I was going to write that book when I was 24. It was amazing. It was just, I was 24 was years old when space, he suggested like that I should write that book. He saw how terrified I, I was as soon as he said it. Uh, the so he said, but not yet. Not yet turned out to be like quite a few years later. Kind of but it was a very interesting reality for me because every single day of my life, really, every day of my life, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. There was nobody I worried about it. I mean, and I didn't, I mean, I worked on it in the sense that I took notes and I was preparing for it, but mostly I, I just worried is, about it. But I, I in, in a strange way, worrying about it was that I was devoted to the project. Being, you know, I couldn't escape I from I the project. I didn't love the project at all. My story, I, I kept my history, hoping that there was a, a way I, I would not have to do it my values in life, it seemed much bigger my than my capability. It turned out that future, Swamiji was able to do it through me, regardless of my all. limitations. But it was always in my life. My and life was entirely defined, really, literally, by the fact that someday I was going to have to write that book. Face came to me. Now, Many of you have children, and, it was so um, amazing. and children is something that most that people moment, are devoted to. I've not myself; have, I have no moment. children, so, but I have had children in many incarnations. We all know how this I works, you, and uh, hmm? I understand and, uh, what that means. That was the and, the and you all understand. Those of you who have children, which is most people, kind of you know what it is. A child in, is never out of your mind. You know, when they're small, and they're never out of their I, mind. When they grow, they're I never out leave. of your minds. And then you have I grandchildren, and then you have to worry about them all and the time. I stayed on with you know, I, for some time, I have to say I'm grateful that I don't have children. To to and and the India, older I get and the more I watch all my friends never escape from having to be devoted to their children, I'm grateful to God that he didn't ask that of me. However, for almost everyone, having children is a very, very, very important part of life. It's not that you have to do it by any means. I mean, I'm standing here. I, I never did, and I'm very happy I never did. But it teaches us what it means to be devoted. And when I was at the beginning of my spiritual life and was 
uh, a sannyasi or a, a brahmachari at that point, brahmacharini at that point. Um, and I, I was of an age, I and my sisters in the little group that I lived with, my spiritual sisters, and our, our, we were of an age when our friends were having babies and beginning to raise babies, which is is kind of shocking when you are a new mother or your friends begin to have children and you realize the inescapability of it. Just there's no, I remember when I was helping one of my friends who had a had just had a baby and. I was helping her bring in the groceries. So we brought in all the groceries and I set every grocery bag on the counter and then I brought in the baby and I wanted to just set the baby on the counter with the groceries. <laughs> and you know, the, the stark reality of the fact that I couldn't just leave her there with all the other groceries. You know, that just wasn't an option and it, it penetrated on a very deep level, you know, what this meant to be responsible for someone else's life. But it's practice. I mean, it's, it's an end in itself, of course. But everything in this world is symbolic of a greater reality. When Swami first said that to me, I, I, still, I still contemplate that idea. It's so interesting to me. Everything in this world, Swamiji said, is so symbolic of a higher, greater reality. Now, it's, it's so hard for one to think that you know, my baby is symbolic. I mean, my baby is my baby. It's my child. But it's symbolic of the degree of devotion that's possible. It's symbolic of how Divine Mother loves us. It's symbolic of the way the Heavenly Father guides and blesses us and raises us into wisdom. Because we are all, the, the material plane, which we think of as the origin point, is actually the last expression of creation. There's the causal level where everything exists on the level of ideas, the astral world where it's energy and vibrations, and then finally there's the material plane. But the material plane is the, the most distant from the origin point and the least subtle. So even though it seems an overwhelming power to us, it's just a very dim reflection of the source of that power. And what we're learning is, is we, we do it as if, as if it were an end in itself. But the real end of it is who we become from the effort. And that fact is proven by death. I mean, in a, in a very positive way, which I know is hard to understand. But because the form doesn't last. You know, it's, it's very interesting to contemplate that the mother-daughter, the father-son, the husband-wife, all of it is based on what body you're inhabiting. As soon as we're not inhabiting this body, that doesn't mean the soul-to-soul, -soul, the jiva-to-jiva -jiva connection dissolves, but the form of the relationship is entirely dependent on the physical body. And, and there's this secret about physical bodies which of course was one of the scenes in the Mahabharata, one of the most famous scenes, when Yudhisthira's father, the Lord, Lord Yama, what is the most remarkable thing about human life? That everyone dies and everyone thinks it's not going to happen to me. It's just, and it's not even that we don't think it's going to happen to us, but we don't live in relationship to that reality. 
And what it means in the context I'm talking about, quite simply, is no matter how profoundly we devote ourselves to this form, in the end that form will dissolve. And so either it's all for nothing, or, or it's a means to a different end. And the, the, the real end of the story is the perfection of our, of our realization and our experience of God. And we, we just go on in this world. I was, we were at the breakfast table or the lunch table today, a few of us <clears throat> talking about someone who said, who we had met, who said, uh, let's see, they tried a number of different spiritual paths, but never had found the one that they, the woman really felt was her own. And I said, oh, that must be so discouraging. But then I had to think about it, and someone at the table said the obvious. Well, you know, when you really, really, really want a spiritual path, when you want a master, when you, and even more importantly, when you have made yourself into a disciple, then God will come to you in that form. The first sentence of Autobiography of a Yogi, which of course is a book that's very important in the context of speaking in this ashram, is uh, it speaks of the the characteristic feature of Indian culture is the search for eternal verities. I I don't have it perfectly memorized, and the and the con, the concomitant, um, and we we used to play a game sometimes where we we would call it autobiography of a yogi trivial pursuit, <laughs> and and would ask obscure questions from the autobiography of a yogi. We would do this sometimes for Christmas parties and things like that. It's really quite fun. You always have one genius at your table who practically has memorized the whole book, you know, who's a living Kindle who can just sort of, you know, knows where it's all marked. And one of them is, what's the first sentence of the autobiography of a yogi? And many people write it out. And almost everyone writes the concomitant guru-disciple relationship. It's not it. It's disciple-guru relationship. And it's interesting how, how easily the mind flips that. And that's because... The guru is always there. You know, so we have this feeling that the guru appears, that the guru incarnates, or the guru is in a body for a while and then he dies. We have this impression that gurus are temporary. But the gurus are eternal. A master said once, uh, once the divine spirit, the master even said, if a, if a self-realized being has even stood in a place somewhere, or if a divine experience has happened somewhere, the vibrations are there forever. And the vibrations of a, a self-realized master are in the cosmos for eternity. It's really hard to even to grasp. There's this really moving story about when master was in America and he met Dr. Lewis, who was his first disciple, and Mrs. Lewis. And uh, he went to Dr. Lewis's home and he was walking up a staircase. And I believe Dr. Lewis lived in the home that he had grown up in as a child. He was walking up the staircase and Master stopped at the landing halfway up. And he said, someone had a vision of God here. And it turned out that when Dr. Lewis was a child, he'd had a divine vision as a, like a six or seven year old child right on that spot. And Master was just walking up the stairs and he knew that God had appeared right in that spot. It's, it's amazing to contemplate just what that says about what reality really is. 
So the, 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 the masters, and when you become a disciple, when you become a deep disciple of a great master and really become devoted to it, it's not likely to be your first incarnation. You know, your first incarnation, you enjoy it for a while and then you go away. Swamiji said that Mount Washington, where he lived with Master, it had been a hotel before it was an ashram. And Swamiji said it was still like a hotel. He said disciples just checked in and out. And, and you would think, one would think, well, if I had the karma to be with Master, I would stay. But people didn't. And they just didn't have the capacity to be that devoted, either to the spiritual path in general or to Master himself. In other words, they had not yet learned to be disciples. And so the, the advice given always by the, the Masters is, you don't wait until you find your Master to become a disciple. You become a disciple because that will draw your Master. And what a disciple, the qualities of a disciple are many, but one is receptivity and humility. And that doesn't mean you have this sort of abject willingness to bow to anyone. Swami Kriyananda himself tells about when he read Autobiography of a Yogi, and he, he says something so touching that I, only, I only discovered when I was writing this book. He says, um, Swami said, from childhood I always felt that I lived in a world of my own that no one shared. He said, and when I read Autobiography of a Yogi, I realized that Master and I lived in the same world. It's a, it's a really a beautiful statement. He felt like for the first time ever, he was in, in connection with someone who, who was really belonged to him. And, uh, and Swamiji was extremely strong-minded to the point of arrogance, he said himself, but partly he was that way because he never saw anyone to whom he, he wished to disciple himself. So as a consequence, he stood in his own reality, but he was simultaneously aware, Swamiji writes, that he didn't know anything. So it, it was a, a, a position of, of tremendous insecurity. But he couldn't just uh, accept a point of view that didn't resonate with him. But nonetheless, he had within him the, the attitude of a disciple, which was this profound devotion to truth. And what he really wanted was the truth. And he was, he was seeking you know, is with everything he had, not to protect his preconceived ideas, but to really understand what was true. And so, as soon as he read autobiography, he realized that Master knew what was true. So, as soon as he was able <clears throat> to get all the way across America and get to Los Angeles and be sitting in front of Master, he said, I want to be your disciple. And when Swami tells us that story, Swami said, until that moment, really, he could never have imagined saying those words to anyone. And yet simultaneously, Swami's devotion was not to himself, 
his devotion was to truth. And so whether or not that devotion expressed, which at that time Swami didn't know how to express kirtan or chanting or prayer or anything like that, but he knew how to be devoted. He, he had, had spent his few years, which was only 22 at that point, but it had been <clears throat> in a constant, unrelenting quest for something that was lastingly true. And Swami talks about how he wanted to be a writer and then he had a revelation about the nature of art and how it was really meant to convey consciousness. And he destroyed everything he'd written up until that point because he saw that it was pointless. He went to college and almost graduated. But before he graduated, he just realized that there was nothing, you know, there was nothing that he wanted in that. So he dropped out of college to be a writer and then he tried to write, but then he realized that he didn't know anything to say. So even though he was not humble in the sense of being self-effacing, he was humble in the face of a reality greater than himself. And he was devoted to understanding more than he already knew. Um, when I was in Singapore a few days ago, um, Brahmacharya, Jamal and I were speaking to a public gathering and we um, took questions. And both of us had used the word God in a, the way that we would normally without feeling any necessity to explain it. We had a mostly Indian audience. It's an interesting mix of cultures there. It was mostly Indian and then some very strong culturally Chinese people, which was a bit of a, a cross-purposes like this because the cultures don't match until they both until everybody becomes a devotee and then nothing makes any difference but it was a public audience but one of the men asked us about the word god and i thought of two things one was in our uh, education for life school uh, one of the girls uh, a 13 year old girl was declaring herself to be an atheist and the teacher, who was very, who's very, uh, very, very good, he, he let her make that declaration quite a lot. But then he started talking to her about, about what he knew about her, about what her nature was really like, what her attitudes were really like. He said, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call you an atheist. I would just call you a truth seeker. And she sort of thought about that. And then later on, I heard her. She would describe herself. I'm a truth seeker. You know, because that was really what she was trying to be. And to be a truth seeker is the same as being a disciple. Because we are devoted to understanding more than we already understand. And we also are bowing before the reality that I don't already know. Or the possibility that it could be bigger than I already know. So talking to this man who was raising the question of God, because I've often had to introduce these ideas to audiences that are not already softened toward them. So you have to think of the right vocabulary. And, and the word, and it, it comes from Swami, but it's a wonderful word, um, is simply the word awareness. Because uh, I, I, when we were in Singapore, one of our hosts there has a three-year-old son, and we spend a certain amount of time in the company of that child who is very energetic and very entertaining and when you have a child who is very energetic and entertaining everything kind of circles around the child as it should and at one point we went to the 
uh, one the orchid garden there, which was really beautiful, and it has has all these had all these fountains in different, in different places. It had fountains and lots of water running, and you know it's sort of nice. You put your hands under the water. So this child was fascinated by the water, uh, and he was a little small. So one of somebody held him up to to try to get him to put his hand in the water, and he had this sort of um, love hate or love fear relationship with the water. Like he would lean toward it, but he wouldn't put his hand in it for anything. And I began to see it from his point of view. He, and he'd never, or at least not remembered, seeing a big fountain like that. It's a moving object. It's an ever-changing object. It makes a lot of noise. I mean, he had no idea whether it could escape from the seeming little you know, container that it was in, whether it was capable of consuming him, you know, whether it was boiling hot or freezing cold, all the things that we just take for granted when you see a fountain. But he didn't know any of those things. His awareness was limited by you know, his, his lack of intellectual development, his lack of actual experience. So all of our lives... <laughs> it's, we, yeah, and then we'll just start dying in here, but we'll, we'll start with that. Okay, but, but uh, his experience and his understanding was limited by his lack of awareness. I mean, he's a fully developed soul. He, he's already had many lifetimes in which he was a, an accomplished grown-up, but as a three-year-old, he, only, he was only aware of so much reality. And when the masters look at us, you know, they're just looking at the same thing. They're looking at three-year-olds. And we have both an attraction and a fear of many aspects of the spiritual path, don't we? You know, and what happens to us is our awareness gradually increases. I remember when I was very new on the path, I had some little experience, and I was not conscious enough to really be able to sort things out. And I had some relatively small experience, and I expressed it to Swamiji and he perceived my relationship to that experience more clearly than I did and he said something to me like don't be afraid and I responded I'm not afraid just like that <laughs> and then I heard the sound of my voice you know and I could tell that in fact that was exactly right you know it had been a little out of the ordinary just enough out of the ordinary that on one hand I knew it was a good thing but I was as much afraid of it as I was attracted to it because my awareness was limited. He said, don't worry, you'll get used to it. That was his phrase to me. You're not going to, you can't, just like my little friend is going to gradually find out that a fountain is inert, you can put your hand in the water, it's not going to eat you, there's nothing like that. So if we're going to make, which is our topic today, you know, discipleship a way of life, it's not enough to just say Master's name all the time. It's not enough to just sort of um, giving even just, oh, well, there's just many ways. It's, but that's not really, it's not what we're doing with our words. It's the, it's the whole way that we're approaching life. It's, it's the whole attitude we have to ourselves. Who do I think I am? What am I really trying to accomplish? What am I really devoted to in my life? See, the, the problem with human life is, one of the problems with human life is, that we're wired to think that ease and pleasure equal good. And when people even speak of good and bad karma, if you stand back, 
Mostly what we mean is good karma is when it's easy and pleasurable and bad karma is when it isn't. But it depends on what you're devoted to. Are we devoted to having the most easy and pleasurable life we can have? Or are we devoted to overcoming delusion and getting free? And it's easy to say these things. I mean, it's very easy to say, and people do say, I want, I want to be free. Kamala Silva, who is a great disciple of Master, I spoke about her on Tuesday, very, this very beautiful soul. She actually prayed. What she prayed was that all her karmic debts would be paid in that lifetime for her. I, 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 that was precisely how she expressed it. I'd always heard it said that she prayed that, all, that she could work out all her karma in, this, in that lifetime. I always thought to myself, I don't have the nerve to pray that. I mean, just the thought of praying that just scared the life out of me. I, I mean, because what could that mean? What kind of debts could I have back there? I mean, really, even now it kind of gives me the willies, you know, even to think about it. And she had a lot of adventures as a consequence. As a consequence, who knows? But that's what she was devoted to. She was devoted to freedom, and devoted to freedom to such an extent that ease and pleasure were out of her, out of her range. She just wanted freedom. Now, to, to make discipleship a way of life is, is to really deeply and very honestly, not romantically, you know, not dramatically. We tend to like both ro a romantic. By romantic, I mean just this sort of idea, this... Uh, what really you would call a childish idea of the spiritual path. I was speaking earlier when a few of you were in the room that for some reason, when I heard Master's phrase that you have within you a portable paradise, that phrase, for some reason, I loved that when I first heard it. I just somehow decided that in five years it would all be accomplished. And I, didn't, I wasn't really disappointed because by the time five years came, I'd learned enough to realize that... Um, it wasn't going to all be accomplished. But there was just that thought in my mind that this is, you know, this is what it is. In other words, I just defined the path in a certain way and then expected it to fulfill itself. What was I really devoted to? Was I devoted to my ideas of what it is? Or was I a truth seeker? You know, and what, what, what I was starting to say is sometimes we have this romantic idea in a very early period of Ananda life. Um, one man... Uh, behaved very badly. You know, he, he, he was a good man, a very good man, with a lot of spiritual potential, but he had weaknesses. And some of his weaknesses got away from him. Swami's attitude toward him was very sympathetic. Not sympathetic in the sense of, of endorsing his weaknesses, but sympathetic to the fact that this happens on the spiritual path. The rest of us, who were, what Swami said later, doubly ignorant, so ignorant that we didn't even know what we were ignorant of, didn't understand that from first aspiration to final transcendence, it's a long road. And merely because we wish, you know, to, to, be, to carry around a portable paradise after five years, doesn't mean that we will. We have this romantic idea of the spiritual path. And there's a point on the path where, where the, the reality of it begins to set in. And in Swamiji's uh, uh, 
course on discipleship, which is not actually a printed course, although there, there are courses now. But when Swamiji was in charge of the monks at Self-Realization Fellowship in like, what would that have been, 1948, 1950? He wrote these notes out that he used to train the monks. And that's a, a course. It's a course in discipleship. It's just an informal set of notes. But he has, what are the most important qualities for, for discipleship? The first is courage. I believe devotion is second. But the first is courage, which is very interesting because it's not a lack of devotion that sinks us. It's a lack of courage when we find out what it means to actually be devoted. Because at a certain point we all have to realize that between aspiration and transcendence there's a lot of space. Because that's who we are. We, we, uh, we spent a long time immersing ourselves deeply in delusion. Oftentimes when I would counsel with people, they, because it's very hard for us to be humble enough, that, you know, true humility is tricky. We think true humility is self-abnegation and guilt and, you know, and weeping over our sins and so on. But uh, humil true humility, Master says, is just self-honesty. It's just being actually able to see, us, see ourselves for who we are. So it's, but it's very uncomfortable sometimes. So people would often, uh, when they would come to talk to me about various things, they would say, well, I know it's stupid to feel this way, or I know I'm silly to have this problem, or I know this is dumb, you know, they use words like that. And I'd always say to them, not at all. You've spent incarnations developing these qualities. You've, you've, you've devoted yourself to becoming this person. There's nothing even slightly silly about it. You know, it's, it's very, very skillful what you've built. And you have to respect it. You know, delusion is a very formidable enemy. And the delusions we've built for ourselves, they're very formidable. And, and you, you are, we're not going to get rid of them just by dismissing them as trivial because they're not. So we have this huge, I, I think of it like this, you know, you're, we're trying to get to the center and duality has been moving us like this. So we've moved over to here and then we've moved over to here and then we've moved over to here and we have to just bring all that energy very gradually back to center. And sometimes, you know, we've just walked very far away from center. I had a very interesting experience once in my, I've had, I've had an experience like this many times, but I had a vivid experience. I just went through a period of time when I was living at Ananda village in which I just sort of made a whole series of bad choices. I just kept making wrong decisions. And I finally got myself rather far away from where I wanted to be. And when I really realized how really out of tune is the only word I can think of, I was. My first was just to fall down in despair. But then it occurred to me, I got myself into this. I mean, I walked in the wrong direction. All I have to turn around is walk, is walk back, you know, in, uh, it, symbolically. I just have to walk back. I just have had some wrong attitudes and I've expressed it badly. All I have to do is stop doing that. The only difference between a criminal and a saint, as Swami said, is how they think and behave. <laughs> you know, if you just change it, there's nothing else. And I remember part of it was that I'd isolated myself very much from other people. I'd sort of built up these strange things that I did. And I remember I was in a, uh, a supermarket 
in, in the local town there. And the supermarkets had these long aisles. And you know how it is in a long aisle. Sometimes you sort of see somebody crossing when you're at the other end. And there were these two people that I didn't particularly like very much. And I sort of saw them, but we were acquainted, and it would have been rude not to greet them. So I sort of pretended I didn't see them, which is what you do, you know. And I started, literally, I started to walk this way. And then I remembered, you know, this closing of my heart to the people around me was what had gotten me into this isolated state. So I turned around and very deliberately went up and I talked to them. And it was very interesting. I just behaved in the opposite way from the way I had been behaving for quite some time. And I tried to be interested in them. I tried to be kind to them. It was, it was very interesting. We had nothing in common and I, I still don't like them very much. <laughs> I mean, in the sense that I don't have any affinity with their personalities. But something happened between our hearts and for years and years afterwards there was always this really wonderful bond between us. They've, they've since moved away from my world and I never see them. But whenever I would see them, we would be so happy to see each other. It was sort of God's way of telling me, you know, karma moves you in one way and you just turn back the other way. Now, what happens to us in our lives, it happens to everyone, but it especially happens to truth seekers. We become more and more aware of what's limiting us. And we become aware in two ways. There's two ways that we can grow, and this is just the way I think about it. We can see that beautiful vision there. And this is what most people think of as devotion, and devotion is very important. You know, you, you see the light, you feel the power of Divine Mother's love. You're, you're absolutely mesmerized by Master's eyes. In, in my life, my experience of, of Swami Kriyananda and his, his nature, the way he just radiated, it's just so attractive and I so wanted to be like that. And that's a very powerful force. And we can keep ourselves motivated by, by having those experiences and wanting to go into that. I'll speak about that in a moment a little more. The other way that happens is our backside catches fire, you know, and we start running away from the pain, you know, and that happens, you know, all our wonderful fellow human beings are often the instrument of that. It happens from war, it happens from death, it happens from disease, it happens from economic catastrophe, Somewhere or another there's a fire behind us and we can't bear it so we start moving. And if we have been devoted or are devoted to truth, we try to ease that suffering by getting closer to the truth. Now, by no means is that the automatic response of the ego. The ego has many other options besides just moving to the truth. And the, the attraction of, uh, of intoxicants and drugs and even suicide or sexuality or money even. Just trying to do something other than move toward the truth. We try to gain mastery or we just try to dull our awareness so we don't even have to feel it. And I, you know, I have great compassion for those things. It's very easy to understand because when that fire is there... The, the, you might just, we just want to put it out. But 
if we're truth seekers, we want to put it out in such a way that it will never set fire again. So it's a question of whether we're looking for freedom or whether we're looking to get back to ease and pleasure. And what happens over many lifetimes is we figure out that ease and pleasure is just going to turn back into the fire because it just does. Our awareness increases to the point where we can see the pattern. And, and it doesn't mean that we always have to have a suffer in this life. I myself have had a very, well, I've had my share. My experiences are all mental, mostly. I don't have a lot of things haven't happened to me, but I get to suffer just in my own head. You know, we're very creative that way. Um, but when I was very first on the spiritual path, you know, I was, I remember I was in a car with Swamiji. I must have been, I think it was my first year. And I was speaking to him about this passionate desire I have, you know, to escape suffering and to find happiness. And I said, it's so paradoxical to me because I've never suffered. I mean, really, I, I just ne had never suffered. I had a very positive upbringing. And then he just looked at me and said, past lives. You know, I mean, just think about it. When we have experiences in this life that are very, very difficult, if we use them properly, what it does for us is it just teaches us about the nature of this world, which is not horrible, but it's not reliable. You know, it's duality. And sometimes it's really horrible. And we have to just remember it. Are we just trying to dull ourselves down? Or are we really devoted to truth? And so at some point in this process, when we really have become disciples, then we get a guru. Because then we will listen. We're ready to listen. And, and we're not just there for what we can, you know, for, we, we're not just asking someone to make it easy for us. There was a man in our community for many years he, he now lives in a different Ananda community. And he would come to all my classes. And he was really good to have in classes because he always asked questions. And most of his questions were good. But gradually I began to realize that no matter how he framed it, he was actually always asking me the same question, which is, the spiritual path seems really hard. Can't you make it easier? <laughs> or the other phrase was, isn't there a shortcut? And uh, no, actually. But... It's taken me decades to actually become aware enough to realize, no, there is no shortcut. That if this difficulty has come to me, if, if this karmic debt has to be paid, it just has to be paid. And, and my challenge is not even the details of it. It's just to remain devoted to the one thing that matters to me, which is that I am the disciple of a great master and he has my life in hand. And, and I finally come to this point, if there were an easier way for me to get to freedom, he would take me by that route. And discipleship as a way, as a way of life is getting it really simple. And it's not easy because many of our tests are really just a challenge on that fundamental point. Can I really accept that this, if, if, if this is happening to me, it must be necessary for this to happen to me? Because we spend so much energy in rebellion. 
So much energy in blame, so much energy in being a victim. And much of the time we're right. People have really mistreated us. You know, they really have behaved badly. The worst kind of karma is when you're right. <laughs> and you just spend all this time being right, but not learning anything, just being right. Because even if you're right, what difference does it make? You know, this is just, this is just the way it is. And if it were an easier way for you to get to God, God would take you by that route. I, I once was in a very difficult personal situation, and it wasn't my own, wasn't my own situation, but people who were close to me were, were having a lot of problems, and I got sucked into the, not sucked into it, but drawn into having to try to help. And I was, uh, it was really more than I could handle. It was just, I, I was overwhelmed, and I was able to sort of go off in my car and I just got myself alone in my car and I was just weeping and weeping with just the the pain, everybody's pain, which had become my pain. And I was crying and there's a certain satisfaction to sobbing. Um, women especially like it. And I mean, it's just sometimes it's just necessary. You just can't, you can't say what you're feeling except by sobbing. That's the only way I can put it. And I was just in that, and this, this voice that actually came like a force, it came in my right ear, it vibrated through my brain and came out my left ear, that's how it felt to me. And it said, do you think this could be happening outside of the will of God? And it was, um, you know, there's eight manifestations of God, and one of them is wisdom. And somebody asked me once, what are your favorite of the eight manifestations. I thought that was a very interesting question. I'd never thought about it. So I did answer and I said joy and wisdom because those are my two favorites. Now love is kind of inching its way up there but uh, most of my life I thought about joy and wisdom. And so I've been very devoted to wisdom. I've, I've really, I've listened to Swamiji talk for all these years and I I've read all his books. Of course, it was easier for me to read his books because I could read them one at a time. I didn't just come in when there were 150 of them. But, um, but I've really, I really like wisdom. I like jnana in the in the true sense, which is I like to know what the truth is, and then I like to try to mold myself to that. So when God, I presume, whoever said it to me. It, could this be happening outside the will of God? It was almost like, really, I said, oh, fooey, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I wanted to be really upset. I was committed to being really upset. And all of a sudden, I just couldn't be anymore because how could it be happening outside the will of God? And if it's not outside the will of God, what are you sitting in this car weeping about? Because the weeping was, you know, this rebellion, this it cannot be, it can't be happening. However, there's a wonderful prayer of Jesus, which I find the best. When Jesus, the night before he was crucified, when he knew what was, what was about to happen, and his grief was not that his body was going to be tortured because he had so transcended his body. What happened to his... He was pleased to have his body sacrificed. He was working out the karma of of his disciples, and he was happy to have that happen. Masters do that. Master himself, Yoganandaji, he had his body suffered enormously, and he just took the karma of his disciples, and he was joyous to do it. So when Jesus was, was concerned about being crucified, 
it's a it's it's a disgrace to think he was concerned about himself. What broke his heart was that he had come to liberate these people and they were rejecting him. I mean, he'd come to liberate all who would receive him and they were going to reject him. So, and that was agony for him because he wanted to save them. And instead they were going to get this very bad karma and they would suffer. So he said, uh, Lord, let this cup pass from me, this bitter cup. Must I drink this bitter cup? But after he prayed that, he said, but thy will not mine be done. Now the way I've always interpreted it is, Jesus had an opinion. <laughs> he had a preference. He, he really thought it would be better if people just accepted what he had to give and rose to the divine freedom that he offered them. And he, he was speaking to Divine Mother and he was saying, let's do something else. And, but, he surrendered to whatever was necessary. And so I've always felt that gives me permission to have an opinion. And it's an important part, and this is also an important part about how to make discipleship your life. You have to be absolutely sincere. Because God is inside of you. Master knows your thoughts better than you know them. I remember once I had gotten myself in one of my, one of my, I'd gotten really off. And I'd gotten so off that Swami was concerned about me. And he came to me and he said, you know, how are you, Asha? And I, I think I said, not well, or whatever it was. But after that, it, it got to be when he would say, how are you? I would say, I don't know, sir. How am I? <laughs> you know, like, how do I know what I am? You tell me. Because he always knew what was really true for me. He, in that case, he said, how are you? And I said, I'm a little worried about myself. He said, I'm worried about you too. And that was exactly what was the case. But you can't fool. One, in another cycle that is relevant to this, um, this was very early. Swami gave me a job that I didn't know how to do, and he kept trying to help me do it. But I was too um, insecure to accept his help. So it went on for about two years like this, and the more he tried to help me, the more frantic I got. And uh, but but later, at the very end, when it finally got to the point where I, it might that might even been the case when he said, "How are you?" and I said, "I'm worried. I am too." I, he said, "Well, you you just wanted to be a good disciple and say yes, but and so he he kept pushing me because I kept saying yes, even though I meant no. You know, it was crazy. He finally said, "You never fooled me." is what he said. I thought we'd never really fool each other. You put, on, you put on a hypocritical face. You pretend to be fine when you're miserable. You act like you love someone when you don't like them. We never fool each other. And we certainly never fool the guru, ever. He knows exactly what we feel. But if we won't open our hearts, he can't help us. Because he won't take away our free will. So you must be absolutely sincere and part of your sincerity, our sincerity, is the courage and the real humility to just say, this is who I am. You know? This is what you've got to work with. The way I think of it is, well, Master in one of his poems says, I will return again and again a trillion times if necessary with bleeding free feet. I will cross crags of suffering as long as one stray brother is left behind him. It's so dramatic, so fantastic. 
And I think, well, that's going to be me. <laughs> and I'm really sorry, but you're just going to have to cross those crags of suffering on believing feet, you know? If, it's, if I'm stuck there because you've promised. And, and Divine Mother likes that. When you have that confidence in, in, in the Guru's love for you, that you don't have to pretend. I mean, think how much time we spend pretending. Jesus said to God, you know, let's not do this. But if you think we have to, we will. So when it said, it, I always think of it as it. I don't know who it was. It said, this is happening because of God's will. I had to stop crying. But what was happening was really terrible and I was not pleased at all. And I also felt that I was at the end of my rope. I was just at the end of my strength. I was having to hold everybody up and I just really couldn't do it. And so, but I, so I, I spoke very strongly to God and I said, all right, if this is your plan and if you expect us to go through this, you'd better get on with this project <laughs> because they're really suffering and I'm really suffering and this is going to get really terrible unless something happens here. I mean, there was no point in being polite because that was, that was really the truth of the matter. And actually, when I went back, you know, and got engaged, at that moment, everything turned. I mean, it didn't get fixed, but it turned in the right direction, and we started down a completely different path. And it, in another stage of my life, it was actually when my parents were in the last years of their life, and I had to be very involved in helping them. And my mother had Parkinson's, and my father, by the end, his mind wasn't working. So it was complicated. And the karma of it really freaked me out for a while. I was totally just... I was thrown by what was happening. But then I remembered that earlier experience and I thought, well, this can't be happening outside the will of God. And then I also looked at them and I thought, golly, I'm not afraid anymore of my own karma, but I'm really afraid of their karma. And I'm afraid for them. And I realized how incredibly disrespectful that was. And I realized that they could tell that I didn't respect them and they didn't appreciate that. I was acting all the time as if they were incapable of coping when they're perfectly capable of coping. They were going to suffer. But if there was another way for them to get to freedom, God would have taken them by that route. But I didn't like it. So I came up with a great prayer, which I've used ever since. Whatever it is you're trying to teach them, Lord, help them to learn it. <laughs> And then sometimes I would focus that, give them the receptivity, the humility, and the wisdom to learn. Okay? See, if we are disciples of a great guru, if we're going to be disciples, that means that there's, there's no exceptions. There's absolutely no exceptions. None, zero. Not for you, not for anybody you love, not for the planet, not for the president of your country, you know, not for climate change. Anything that we're afraid of, there's no exceptions. Can this be happening outside of the will of God? And if it is the will of God, then it must be for my enlightenment. And, and you know, that's, that's what you contemplate. That's what you become devoted to. And yes, of course, the more you love the more you experience from the heart, the easier all that gets to be. 
You know, when I really got in that right relationship to my parents toward the end of their lives, in the last years there, it wasn't always easy for me. My mother, I loved my mother, she was very dear. She was also exasperating, you know. And I remember just at one point, she was, she was somewhat uh, immobilized by Parkinson's. And I remember I actually realized she was just this frail 80-year-old woman on a couch. And I wasn't actually yelling at her, but I wanted to. And I thought to myself, this is really crazy. You know, and I just had to walk out of the house and gather myself together and just think, you know, you, somehow you're missing the point here. This, this, this really can't be what's supposed to be happening here. And then I had to switch the prayer. Whatever it is you're trying to teach me, give me the wisdom and the humility to learn it because I'm not doing very well with all of this. But there's no exceptions. And that's what you have to practice. It's, it's really all or nothing. Somebody asked Swamiji once, how do you, what's the secret of lifelong devotion to the spiritual path? And the first thing he said is you have to realize it's a, an absolute matter of life or death. I mean, he didn't mean physical death. Physical death is trivial. He meant spiritual death. You either do it or you lose. And, and that sounds grim, but once you get yourself to there, it's actually like your life gets so simple. Because you still have to struggle, but you don't have to rebel anymore. And, and you don't have to blame anyone for very long. You blame them for a while until you realize that you're right, but it's irrelevant. You know? And then you also have to ask yourself, I'm balancing karma, I'm paying some debt. So why would I not want to pay it? You know? Why would I not want to pay it? Because I want it to be easy and pleasurable. I mean, I have a really good answer. But there we are. And then all of a sudden it gets really different. At the end of Swami's life, toward the end of Swamiji's life, at one point he had a, a major operation, I think. I think it was when, they had to take, when he had cancer and they had to take something, part of his colon out or something. It was pretty gruesome. And we weren't even sure he'd live through it because he was very weak. And he just talked about how blissful the whole experience was. He wrote about it afterwards. He said just going into the hospital, you know, being there in the hospital, the operation, the recovery, all the pain, everything. And then he quoted a verse from the, Bible, uh, from the Gita, which was basically, to the man of wisdom, everything is the same. And he, and he wrote, and he wrote rather, you know, bluntly like this. He said, according to that, he said, I should be just as happy going out for a wonderful dinner or going to the hospital to have my guts ripped out. <laughs> he rarely spoke in such language. Usually he spoke elegantly, but I remember, to have my guts ripped out. <laughs> and even at the time, I thought, what a phrase. But he was really trying to say it. And he said, it, it can be true, because if one hears everything as this is the only possible way I could get to God, why would I not be delighted to have it? And as Swami says, a little pain never hurt anyone. <laughs> By, now, I, I don't have that feeling at all. I, I can't look with equanimity on suffering and happiness. I, I just can't. But I can look at suffering differently. And I know that the ability to do that keeps me on the path and makes discipleship not just part of my life, but my life.
because I'm a devotee. And that's the other definition of the word devotee. I love the word devotee. It's one of my favorite words. But what am I a devotee of? And, and just you have to ask yourself that question every single day because our awareness keeps shifting. Things keep happening. What am I a devotee of? Not who, but what? Because even though there is a, an apparent who here, there's no real individuality here. This, these are windows on a, on a ray of grace, is what Swami used to call it. It's a ray of grace that we're attuned to. We become a devotee of that ray, and there's, you know, there's a, I don't know if the, whatever it was, the, the science fiction series, I don't know whether it came to this country or not, the one, Star, Star Trek, the one where they would beam you up, and so you would go to this, I mean, now it all looks so uh, comical, but at the time it was extremely advanced and and you would go and there would you would have to stand in a certain spot and then the little right light thing would come down and you would dematerialize into it and then you would be transported to somewhere else and I, I, I think of that image a lot <clears throat> because the ray of grace which is which these masters and Swamiji are a vehicle for that ray of grace and because they have uh, <clears throat> focused the ray of grace, we can access it by understanding them. And that's why they're there. Because Master is beautiful, and his eyes are radiant, and the stories of his life are thrilling. And Swamiji is extraordinary, and the stories of his life are thrilling. And Sri Yukteswar and Babaji, and all of that, but what you have to understand, what's worth considering, is they are completely, um, the vibration that comes through them is absolutely unconditioned. It's infinite. It's always everywhere. That's just so remarkable to think about. It's always everywhere. There's nowhere you could be where it's not as completely present as it is in a temple, in a kirtan. Um, when I was in Israel uh, in November last year, we went to a place where they said that when Jesus was arrested, he was kept overnight and taken from place to place and then crucified the next day. And they believed that this place where he was taken was the house where one of the high priests was, and that there were these uh, uh, caves sort of underneath the house that they believe were prison cells. And they have the belief that Jesus was held in one of these cells while he was taken from place to place. I have a little bit of claustrophobia, and I have a, 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 a certain anxiety about being imprisoned underground in a dark cell. This is a, it's partly because I'm Jewish, and so I think about concentration camps from the Second World War. And it's just a karmic thing. So sometimes in those environments I get really nervous. And in, in another place when, on this same trip, when we were in a cave and it was a bit crowded and dark, I absolutely panicked and I had to run out of it. The same trip. So when, But we got down into this cell and grace came. That's the only thing I can think of. And I was closing my eyes and meditating and I was deliberately exaggerating my circumstances rather than running from them, which is what I would be more accustomed to do. Deliberately imagine that I was abandoned there, 
that I was alone there, that I had no idea if I would ever get out, and that it was pitch black. And in that moment, I became conscious of the fact that it's impossible to escape from the full, infinite, loving power of God. And that to be to have everything else taken away from you actually puts you closer because that's all you have at that point. And it was really one of the most ecstatic moments on a very, very uplifted trip. It was just in the, way in the bottom in that cave, just sitting there like that. Because nothing inhibits the expression of this infinite ray. The only thing that's limited is our willingness and our ability to receive it. And so whenever we're not feeling it, it's just because we've moved out of it for one reason or another. And really, actually, it doesn't matter a whit why we've moved out of it. It doesn't matter if somebody did something to us or we did something, or guilt, guilt, anger, rebellion, all these things. It doesn't make any difference. Just get back into it. It's, you know, when, when you're standing there to be beamed up to the other planet, you know, you don't argue that I want to be beamed up from over here. You just walk until you're standing in it. And, and one, one becomes devoted to being in that light. And everything else is not good. So all I want to do is move back into it. You, you make your life on that. And your whole incarnation passes. And then when that time comes that you're taken out of your body, one of my friends, when she had cancer, she didn't know what she should pray for. I mean, she, she was dying, and she knew she was dying, but she, she just didn't know what to pray for. You know, should she still pray to be healed? She wasn't sure. Swami's answer was so simple. Pray to be in the light, he said. Just pray to be in the light. And that was in the light in the body, in the light in the astral world. It didn't matter. And she got this big image of the sun, and she just put it up on her uh, so she could see it from her bed symbolically. It was silver, and it really glistened. And, and it just, it worked. Because everything that happened to her from then on until she passed, she just would bring herself back. Bring herself back to the light. All right. <clears throat>